Acts chapter 25, zoom in with me to verse 10 to 12 as we begin. Acts 25, beginning in verse 10. But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there's nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his council, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Let's ask God's blessing on his word. O Father in heaven, we thank you for your holy word, infallible, inspired, standing the test of time, able to make us wise. Give us ears to hear, pour out the Holy Spirit upon us, help us to make the right application. In Christ's name, amen. I think it goes without saying, why do people start sentences like that and then they say it anyway? Man has an issue with authority. Sinful man has an issue with authority, and we are all sinners. So that means that by nature, before we come to Christ to be renewed by faith in Him, there's something in us that resists being told what to do. We don't like authority. Back in the Garden of Eden, God said, Do not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they ate. The end of the book of Judges ends with everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And it was complete chaos. We're told in the New Testament that one of the marks of the last days would be people would be disobedient to parents and authorities among the list. That's what the Bible says. We take God at his word, but we could also look around and find that that's true even today. Hatred of institutions, hatred of law enforcement, of authority, abounds in society, in culture, in schools, in homes. In many instances, some of that hatred is warranted or at least earned. I think we'd agree that many people in authority have squandered their respect through, due to abuse, neglect, oppression, incompetence, neglect, or corruption. Yet... The overwhelming testimony of this book from cover to cover is God's people ought to be submissive to authority as unto him. God is the one who set up authority. God is the one who tells us to respect our leaders. And this is Paul's argument in Romans 13. This is Peter's argument in 1 Peter 2, where he literally says, Submit for the Lord's sake to every human institution and he goes on to even qualify to the just and to the unjust that's hard to hear isn't it so God commands human beings to set up authorities to keep order because God is a God of order at home in the church in the government at work And he commands that his people should be submissive to those authorities. Yet, as I pointed out, human beings, we are, by nature, rebels. 
We do not like being told what to do. And many of those authorities have lost respect in our eyes. And so this problem creates this sort of tension. What are the limits of authority in my life? When is the appropriate time to resist authority? If you know stranger to the last few years, these questions have come to the surface even more. 2020, COVID regulations, mandates, riots in the streets. People have been talking about where do we draw the line when it comes to submission to authority. And those questions have seeped into the church as well. And so it's no surprise then at this point, different theological trends have arisen to try to answer these questions. They center around these questions of authority and the role of the Christian as it relates to the government. Perhaps you are aware of the resurgence of theonomic post-millennialism and Christian nationalism, debates within Christian circles about what does a Christian nation look like, whether certain amendments should be revoked, including the right of women to vote. Does the Great Commission involve more than just church planting and discipleship? Does it also involve having as many kids as you can have and building Christian institutions and putting Christians in office? I'm sure some of you would love for me to address all those topics right now. And some of you are probably saying, what is this guy talking about? Today is not the day to analyze each particular theological concept around this question of government and us. Maybe one day we will. But I'm telling you, some of them will be off the radar once we get to them. And if I can say as your pastor, if you are caught up in listening to and, and, and reading about these things, I can only caution you, exercise discernment. But what I do intend to do today... Let's take a good look at these two chapters in the book of Acts, chapter 25 and 26, and draw from them timeless principles that ought to reorient our heart toward a proper view of those in authority. You see, there's no theological trend out there, no popular fad, whether how popular it is on the internet or not, that is worth you following it. If your reason for believing it stems from things outside the Bible. We all have opinions, of course. We could talk about any government mandate, whether it's the traffic laws or or what what have you, tax codes. We're all going to have an opinion about what's good and what's not so good. I'm sure we all had opinions about whether the government overstepped its bounds during the COVID-19 pandemic. But your opinion on that does not inform your theology. Your theology must inform your opinion. And your theology can only be shaped by the Word of God. And my concern is that many of us form our opinions first, myself included, and then we look for Scripture to justify what we believe. When really it's the Scripture... That should guide our thinking. And we should be willing to change if the Bible says so. Now, one thing that gets lost in this whole conversation about government abuse, oppression, social justice, stolen elections, government overreach. Have I been controversial enough yet? 
But you know what gets lost in the conversation? What gets lost in the conversation is that whether or not you like those in office, they are living, breathing human beings made in the image of God who are sinners in need of salvation. Can can you turn with me? Hold your place in Acts. We'll come back to it in just a moment. But go with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy 2. And of course we heard a sermon on this recently from Johnny. But this is the same Paul who stood before Felix and Festus and Agrippa. And he wrote this to his protege Timothy. In 1 Timothy 2 verse 1 to 6. He says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, verse 2, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. See what Paul's doing there? He's writing to Timothy, who's going to talk to new Christians who are living under oppression and abuse and neglect by the Roman government. And he's telling them, pray for your kings because God desires all men to be saved. Sometimes we think God desires my neighbor to be saved. God desires my coworker to be saved. But there's no way God desires Hillary Clinton or Joe Biden or Donald Trump to be saved. We just chant, lock her up. Some of us can't wait for Trump to go to jail while others can't wait for Biden to go to jail. And I wonder, do you want them to go to heaven? At the end of the day, you can have your opinion on who should pay the time for the crime. But brothers and sisters, if there's one thing to pull out of this text today, is to ask the question, do we even have a heart to see our leaders come to faith? If there's anyone who lost his freedoms, it's the Apostle Paul. We complain about high taxes He lost his ability to go where he wanted. He was chained to two soldiers. And when it was his turn to go before the authority, the thought of the loss of his freedom wasn't even on his mind. You know what was at the forefront of his mind? Preaching the gospel to the lost sinner in front of me. Now, please understand... I'm not presenting an either-or here today. There are definitely times to resist. Just ask Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when the king said, bow to the statue or burn. Just ask Peter and John in Acts when the authorities said, don't preach in Jesus' name anymore, and they did. It is better to obey God than man. There are times to look your leader in the eye and rebuke him or her, as John the Baptist did with Herod. There are times for us to use lawful procedures, like voting to appoint better leaders. My question isn't about that today. Our text doesn't address that today. Our text addresses the heart. Do you see your leaders, not just in government, but your your bosses, your employers, 
law enforcement? Do you see them? Do I see them? As men and women merely standing in the way of your desired world, or do you see them as men and women who need salvation? Do you pray for them? As Paul told Timothy, this is good in the sight of God. Do you want them to come know the Lord? Two things can be true at the same time. You can oppose tyranny with all lawful and biblical means, and you can desire for the tyrant to be saved. I've seen a trend lately with Christians wearing shirts that say defy tyrants. I wonder if we should have shirts made that say pray for tyrants. Preach to tyrants. Love tyrants. That's so radical. Yes. And it's the way of the gospel. And Acts chapter 25 and 26 show that to us. Let's look at it here. But before we get to 25, I want you to understand that what Paul is doing as he goes before yet another trial... He's doing exactly what Jesus told his disciples would happen. You don't have to turn there, but back in Mark 13, Jesus told his disciples, Be on your guard, for they will deliver you to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, But say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Jesus, when he appeared to Paul in Acts 9, said the same thing. He said, go to Ananias about Paul. He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. By being a disciple of Jesus Christ, Paul's mission was to preach the gospel particularly to the Gentiles and particularly to kings. And he will also do that before Gentile kings in Rome itself. You might remember probably a few months ago, Paul determined to go to Jerusalem and then to Rome. And in these two chapters, he's on his way to his destination. We're going to quickly try to go through the narrative of 25 and 26 and point out a few things along the way. Verses 1 to 3. Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul. And they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. So in our last episode, Paul was left in prison. Because Governor Felix didn't want to deal with him. For two years, Paul was, was in captivity in the palace in Caesarea. Well, Felix is no longer the governor. Festus now takes over. So Festus doesn't have a Jewish background like, like Felix. And he comes in and finds maybe on his desk somewhere some, something that tells him about this two-year-old Jewish case about a prisoner that has no formal charges. So he goes to Jerusalem, as it was very important for uh, Roman governors back then to kind of become buddies with the Jewish leaders. And I want you to notice something, that even though two years have passed by, and even though the, the change in authority went from Felix to Festus, something did not stop. Again, verse 3 tells us, That the Jews wanted to plan an ambush to kill Paul. 
I think what, one thing we need to draw out of this is that rage doesn't stop with the changing of a guard. Oh yes, we want good leaders. We want the best mayor, governor, president we can think of. And may God give that to us. But the same Jews who wanted to kill Paul and had such hatred against him two years prior still had that hatred, even though there was a change in the governor. The Bible tells us over and again to not put your trust in princes, but in the spirit of the Lord. And so they're still raging. They still want to kill Paul. In verse 4, Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. Verse 5, so said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me. And if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. So they want Festus to try Paul in Jerusalem. Paul knows that if I go to Jerusalem, they're going to kill me. Festus says, how about you guys from Jerusalem come with me to Caesarea and we'll try Paul over there. Verse 6 and 7, after he stayed among them, not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Now, if this sounds like a rerun, it is. We've seen this in the last two or three sermons, right? They continue to say the same thing over and over again. This man is a blasphemer. This man caused a riot. This man this, that, and the other none of which they can prove, and quite frankly, none of which the Romans would have been interested in. The only thing they would care about is, is this man a terrorist who is threatening the order of the culture? They don't care to enter into debates about who's the Messiah and whether or not Paul is for or against the law of Moses. So, Paul, once again, argues in his defense. Look with me in verse 8. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, that's Rome, have I committed any offense. Now, I'm sure Luke is sort of summarizing what Paul said and what they said, just to sort of give you the point that this trial is happening again. And Paul, once again, stands his ground and says, I've done nothing wrong. So, verse 9 to 11. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor... There's that corruption in the government yet again. Said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. And Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Remember, Paul is a Roman citizen. Roman citizens had a right to appeal to Caesar. So he's invoking this right now. It doesn't necessarily mean when Paul arrives in Rome that it'll be Caesar, Nero himself. It might be someone standing in. But the point is, he has the right to take his case to the highest court of the land. And if he demands such a thing, the Roman governor is is required to get him to Rome safely. Without any threat to his body or any threat to his life. Now, why would Paul want this? 
I, I don't know about you, but I would be so exhausted by this point. The, the Jews in, in, uh, in Jerusalem, before Claudius the tribune, before Felix the governor, before Festus the governor, like, look, I've said all I had to say. And yet Paul is like, give me another one. Bring me to another court so I can go and vindicate myself. But there was a greater desire. There was something in Paul's heart that, that superseded even his desire to declare his own innocence. In Romans 1, Paul says this, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son. And without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. We have seen this time and again in the book of Acts. Paul's desire was to go to Rome for one ultimate reason, to preach the gospel. And he saw this trial as a means to an end. The end of which is to bring the gospel to the Gentiles and to the kings, just as Jesus told him on the road to Damascus. That was his burning desire, his burning passion. We talk about that amongst ourselves sometimes. What's the thing that gets you up in the morning? What is the, the passion you have that colors everything and how you see the whole world? For Paul, it clearly was the gospel. Woe to me, he says, if I preach not the gospel. So Paul appeals to Caesar, knowing that if he does so, he's going to get a free ride to Rome. F.F. Bruce says this, From what we know of Paul, we may be sure that the uppermost consideration in his appeal to Caesar was not his own safety, but the interests of the gospel. How countercultural is it to our ears today? When, for many of us, the main concern is our safety, our freedoms, our rights, and when those things are threatened, get nervous, starts to change the way we think. But Paul's interest was the gospel. Now for Festus, in verse 12, he says, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you go. For him, that's music to his ears. Because now he, has to, he doesn't have to hear the complaints from the Jewish leaders. The only problem with this, though, is you can't quite send Paul to Caesar if Paul doesn't come with a document stating what those specific charges are. So, before we get to Caesar, there's yet another individual that Paul will stand before in order to try to figure out what exactly are we charging him with. That brings us to verse 13 to 22. Please look at it with me. It says in verse 13, Now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix, And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought." When the accusers stood up, 
They brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about certain, a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserts to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, that's Caesar, I ordered him to be held until I can send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So Agrippa is the grandson of Herod the Great, same Herod from the book of Matthew. He's the son of Herod the, uh, of Agrippa I, who had an ultimate demise a few chapters ago in the book of Acts. He wasn't known for as many scandals as his father and grandfather, although this woman that he comes with, Bernice, is actually his sister, and it was pretty much common knowledge that he and his sister had a relationship that was not appropriate. This was the case for many, if not all, of the Roman governors and kings in that day and age. There was much, much sexual immorality. Uh, So nothing is new under the sun, brothers and sisters. But this Agrippa is of Jewish descent. So he would know a little bit more about the things that Paul is talking about than Festus. So Festus' hope is that Agrippa would hear the charges and be able to come up with something that can then send Paul uh, to Caesar. He hopes he can clarify before he goes to Rome. So Festus uh, Agrippa agrees to hear Paul, and now he enters with great pomp. Look at the end of chapter 25 now, verse 23 to 27. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city, Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Just, you see the the steps of authority? You know, Paul Paul went from the Jews in Jerusalem to the governors and now to a king. Just keeps getting more grand and more grand. Festus said, verse 24, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. Common sense, right? That brings us now to 26. Acts chapter 26. Now that the Lord has led Paul to go before the king, we have a face-to-face encounter with now the highest court that Paul is about to face. King Agrippa and the apostle Paul. So look with me in Acts 26, verse 1 to 3. So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. 
See, Paul finds himself in a privileged place. He has the opportunity to explain to someone with a Jewish background what it is that brought him to this place. The hope of the resurrection, based upon the promises of God in the Old Testament scriptures, that is why he's here. And maybe Festus, the Roman Gentile, will not understand this, but Agrippa, I hope he understands this. And again, I wonder, if that were me, if that were you, would our all-encompassing motive be the gospel to this person, or would it be something else? Where is your heart? Where is mine? So what Paul does now in talking to Agrippa is he does something that all of us can do if you are in Christ. Because to this point, you might be saying, look, I'm not Paul. I'm never going to stand before a king. I don't know what this has to do with me. And it's true, you may never stand before a king or a president or a governor. But we will all be made to account for our faith. We all must, as Peter says, be ready to give an answer to those who ask us a reason. It may be at work. Maybe at your home, at a family gathering. Maybe in the neighborhood. Maybe out in evangelism. And one of the things that we can do, besides, of course, giving the gospel straight up, is tell our testimony. We all have a testimony. If you're in Christ today, you have a testimony. Now, you may have heard people come behind this pulpit and talk about, you know, something dramatic. How God saved them out of jail, out of a life of drugs, out of addictions, out of... And you might say, well, my testimony is kind of boring. You know, I, I was raised in a Christian home and I, I came to believe. And that's it. Let me tell you something. That's not boring. That is not boring. That is a blessing. And children, if you can hear me today, if you are being raised in the nurture and admonition of the Lord... Come to faith. Don't put it off. We want to spare you of a life of hurt and pain. Oh yes, God will use the means that he chooses to use to bring him to yourself. But may you receive Christ at an early age. And that is not a boring testimony. The angels rejoice over one sinner who repents. And may it be said that all the children in this room come to Christ without having to go out and live like a prodigal first. You may have read a gospel tract. You may have listened to the radio. You may have heard a street preacher. You may have had a co-worker share faith. You may have had a, a grandmother pray with you at the side of a bed. You may have come to an altar. You may have watched it on TV. I, I don't know what your story is. I know some of your stories, obviously. But I don't know all your stories. But every story is beautiful. Because it testifies to the saving power of Jesus Christ. There's only one way to be saved. The Lord Jesus Christ. But there are many things and different ways He does that in our lives. And Paul gives us an outline here, very simple outline, in verses 4 to 23. In verses 4 to 11, he discusses his life before Christ. In verse 12 to 18, he talks about how Christ saved him. And verse 19 to 23, his life since Christ. That's your testimony. Your life before Christ, how you came to Christ, and your life since Christ. That's it. What does Paul say about himself? And I won't go through everything because we've heard this many times already. But verse 4 to 11, Paul identifies himself as a sinner. Look with me, verse 4 to 11. 
my manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Again, you may not have the dramatic background of Paul who, who, who tried to kill Christians, who put them in prison for their faith. Perhaps this is why Paul didn't seem so concerned about the Jewish leaders waiting to ambush him, because he knows what it's like to be in that same place. But Paul identifies himself to King Agrippa. He says, listen, King, just like you, I'm a Jew. I lived in the strictest sense of Judaism, and I too persecuted the church of God. But it should not be strange to us that God raises the dead. Because King Agrippa, if you know the Old Testament, well, he wouldn't call it the Old Testament, but if you know the Scriptures, you know that God is all-powerful. And you know that God can raise the dead and even testifies that He will raise the dead. That shouldn't be strange, O King Agrippa. But I lived a life of sin and murder. It was on my way to condemnation. But then something happened. How Christ saved Paul. Verse 12 to 18. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? The Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise, stand upon your feet. For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That's the second part of Paul's testimony. First he talks about how he was a sinner, and now he talks about how Jesus saved him. Jesus appeared to him. We we read about this many months ago. It says, it's hard for you to kick against the goads as a shepherd would would use a, a pointed stick a goad to prod and lead along and even discipline his sheep. Sometimes those sheep would kick back, thinking they were doing themselves a favor. I don't don't want to feel that, but when you kick back to a sharp-edged tool, you hurt yourself even more. As Paul was kicking back against the Christians, Jesus is telling him, you're only hurting yourself. Paul's resistance against God's authority only hurt Paul. 
And so Jesus radically saves him. Now again, you might say, but my testimony is nothing. I didn't see any lights. I didn't have any voices from heaven. But faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. If you, at one point in your life, as a lost sinner, all of a sudden, through whatever means it was, whether in a church or at home or wherever, came to believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that is a supernatural work of God. God opened your blind eyes. God melted your stony heart. God shone the light of Christ into your heart so that you can believe upon Him. He, he poured out His Spirit so you would be convicted of your sin. The same sins that you've loved for years, perhaps, or never even realized were sinful. All of a sudden you realize that sin is separating me from God. How did that happen? The Holy Spirit. And He drew you in with cords of love, showing you your need for salvation. Brothers and sisters, your salvation is a miracle. It is a miracle given to you by the grace and love and mercy of God. It may not come with the pomp and circumstance of all of Paul's conversion. But rest assured, when you came to faith, there were angels rejoicing in heaven. So Paul tells Agrippa, this is what happened. I'm just reporting what happened. And God called me in that moment to be a witness to turn Gentiles like you, Agrippa, from darkness to light, so that you too can be in this blessing. And now Paul's life since Christ, right? Number one is his life before Christ. Number two is how he met Christ. Number three, his life since Christ. You know, your testimony is ongoing. It's not simply, you know, 15 years ago I prayed the sinner's prayer and that was it. No, God is doing something in your life every day. He is changing your desires, changing your priorities. Growing you in the fruit of the Spirit. And Paul also mentions here in verse 19 to 23, his life since Christ. Look with me in verse 19. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim the light both to our people and to the Gentiles. What Paul says to Agrippa is, ever since that day where Christ appeared to me, I've been radically changed. The gospel has consumed me. I have gone to Damascus. I've gone to Jerusalem. I preached the gospel. And the only reason I'm here before you, Agrippa, is because these people don't believe what the prophets and Moses said would happen. Paul's life since Christ has been a testimony of the grace of God on the life of a sinner. Warren Wearsby gives us actually five points here I think is pretty interesting about Paul's testimony. Number one, I lived a Pharisee. Number two, I saw a light. Number three, I heard a voice. Number four, I obeyed. And number five, I continue. And brothers and sisters, I can't stress this enough. Whenever it was that you came to faith in Christ, your life now still speaks toward that day. 
how you speak, how you act, what your priorities are. They don't save you. They don't make you more saved. God is pleased with you in Christ, but they do say something about the power of God in your life. They validate Christ's work. Paul's life clearly validated that what he said happened in Damascus was true. Now, we hear this and we delight in the Lord, but as you could probably imagine, not everybody was pleased. As Festus is listening to this, here's what he says in verse 24. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Do you you see just for a moment here how truth can be spoken as much as I can speak truth into this microphone and it can go through those speakers and into your ears, but it's really only those who have ears to hear that can receive it. Some will hear it and say, glory to God. And others will say, you're crazy. And that's what Festus is saying. And that's what you and I should expect. If you feel motivated by God's grace to, as we preach this today and you're like, I'm going to go out and tell people my testimony. I, I hope that that happens. But I need to also tell you, not everyone will be happy to hear it. I think you know that. You can conjure up the courage and pray to God. I'm going to talk to that friend of mine and say to your friend, I'm going to talk to you about Jesus today. Not many are going to say, oh yeah, that's great. Some will say what Festus said. You're crazy. Don't let that discourage you. Don't let that stop you. Understand that the sower, in the parable of the sower, sows the seed indiscriminately. It is up to God to give ears to hear. Do not let people's mockery stop you from preaching the gospel. So Festus screams at him in verse 24, but in verse 25, Paul says, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and I, to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. Do you see Paul's heart for the king? Paul loves this man. He hardly knows him, but he has pity on him. And he's appealing to what he knows. You know the scriptures, King Agrippa. I know you believe the prophets. Think about Paul standing there before the king, bound by soldiers and chains. I know for myself, probably the first thing I would want to do is get rid of the chains. But Paul's desire was to appeal to the king so the king would come to faith in Christ. Well, the king says in verse 28, very famous verse of scripture, by the way. Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Some translations, the King James said, You almost persuaded me to be a Christian. That's where we get this hymn. I don't know how many of you know the hymn, the old hymn, Almost Persuaded. Here's, I'm not going to sing it for you, but I will read it. Almost persuaded, now to believe. Almost persuaded, Christ to receive. Seems now some soul to say, Go spirit, go thy way. Some more convenient day on thee I'll call. 
Second verse says, Jesus invites you here. Angels are lingering near. Prayers rise from hearts so dear. Oh, wander, come. Oh, be persuaded. Christ never fails. Oh, be persuaded. His blood avails. Can save from every sin. Cleanses you without, within. Will you not let him in? Open the door. And then the tragedy of the last verse of the song. Almost persuaded. Harvest is past. Almost persuaded. Doom comes at last. Almost cannot avail. Almost is but to fail. Sad, sad, the bitter wail. Almost but lost. If you're here today and you put yourself in that category of almost, I'm almost there, kind of on the fence. This whole Jesus thing. I think he might be real. I think he died on the cross for my sins. I'm not sure. I can't warn you enough. Today is the day of salvation. Call upon him while he is near. Call upon him while his word is being laid forth. The most tragic thing you can do is hear the gospel and say, I'm not ready. Go my way. Because let me tell you something. Tomorrow is not a guarantee. Call upon Him while it is still the day. We are all sinners. We all need a Savior. And God has provided the Savior in Christ. What more do you want? Come to Him. Now verse 29, I think, is in a sense the thesis of my whole message today. Because my point is to show you Paul's heart for authority. After Agrippa says, do you think you're going to persuade me in such a short time? Paul says this in verse 29. Please look at verse 29. Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day, might become such as I am, except for these chains. I don't know if my words can describe what I see in this text. But you talk about the inconveniences of this world, the injustices that we suffer, the government overreach, the things that we don't like. Would you and I be able to stand in a room with Festus, who just called me crazy? King Agrippa, who's like, I'm not persuaded. And all these other soldiers, that some of whom probably want me dead. And be able to say with a clear conscience before God... I wish that all of you would be saved like I am. And the only thing about me I wish that would not happen to you is that you would be in chains. Do you see how much Paul's interest was for others and not himself? I wonder, can we say that? I wonder if I can say that. Accept these chains. Yes, we want to see justice served, and that's fine. But even more than your desire to see corrupt politicians do their time, do you want to see them saved? What's more important? And what's in your heart? Now this chapter ends in a sort of anticlimactic way. Look with me in verse 30 to 32 as we bring the plane for a landing here. The king rose and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free 
if he had not appealed to Caesar. So Agrippa doesn't really have any charges either, but it is Paul's right to go to Caesar. And Acts 26 leaves us with Paul on his way to Rome. We don't see any conversions. We don't see the king come to Christ. We don't see Festus come to Christ. Paul's not killed. He's safe another day. But he's still a prisoner. And he's heading towards Rome where he wanted to be all along. Let me take just a few moments to draw from this text the difference the gospel makes in three groups of people that we still have today. One is religious people who don't have the gospel. You do understand you can be religious but lost. You can be seriously religious and have no connection to God. Think about the Jewish people in this story. They're charging Paul with so many crimes against their own religion that they're willing to set up a scheme to kill him. Do you see the irony? You may not be an Old Testament expert, but I think we all know commandment number six, you shall not kill. They're willing to forego a basic commandment of God to satisfy their seething, never-ending hatred. This is the result of a religion that has no connection to God. Without a connection to God, religion, doesn't matter how devoted you are to religion, it will devolve into some sort of source to justify all sorts of sins, including violence. Now someone might say, yeah, but you know, Christians do bad things too. Look at the Inquisition. Look at the Crusades. Look at all those Christians who've killed abortion doctors and claimed to do it for Christ or the Salem witch trials and... And yes, those are awful things. But it only proves the point that people can use any religion, including Christianity, to justify their sins. But such people who claim to be Christians, are they following Christ? My Jesus says, love your enemies. And there's a vast difference between a religion where a book literally says, kill the infidel... Versus a book that says, love your enemies. If I claim to follow the Lord who tells me to love my enemies, and then I kill my enemies, I'm not following the Lord. And I don't speak for Christianity. Brothers and sisters, if there's any warning we get from these Jewish leaders who wanted to constantly accuse Paul and even kill him, it's this. Make sure that in your religious devotion, you have a connection with God by faith in Christ. A Christless religion poison. Secondly, we see in this text authority without the gospel. Authority is good, as I mentioned in the opening. God ordained authority. He wants us to have authority in the home, in the government. But it was ironic here because every authority figure we've seen in the book of Acts has had some form of corruption. Agrippa here, accused of incest with his sister. All of the Herods known for immorality. Felix, a chapter ago, was a man who wanted a bribe from Paul. Festus was a man-pleaser who wanted to do a favor for the Jews. And as I've said, our distrust in authority is often not without warrant. But our king, the king who died for us, as we sang earlier, he is always good. Jesus is never uh, scandalous. He will never let us down. He will never be incompetent. He is always good, always perfect, always righteous. His sovereign will is good. 
And so whether or not you have leadership at the home, in school, at your job, steward your leadership like Jesus would. Daryl Bach says there is an irony in having such a couple, Agrippa and Bernice, sit in judgment on Paul, who, as Luke makes clear, was innocent. This is a world turned upside down. So we see a religion without the gospel. We see authority without the gospel. But then we see a sinner changed by the gospel. And that's you and me. That's what we are. We are sinners, but we're saved. We're forgiven. We're given a new life. Paul himself lived like a tyrant, but look at him now. Confessing Christ, willing to surrender his freedoms, willing to persuade tyrants, to love them, to speak the truth from them, to them. Where does that come from? His people, the Jews, are living under Roman rule, and most Roman authorities were crooked and unjust and idolatrous and sexually immoral. How can Paul stand to look at them? The only way Paul can have pity on these men is the gospel. If we understand the gospel, it radically changes our heart's orientation toward other people, including those in authority. So I leave you with this application. Let the gospel inform how we approach authority. I'm not wading into debates about what is overreach, what kind of tax code is best, who should we vote for. That's a separate discussion. I'm saying while you discuss those things, pray for your leaders. Preach the gospel to them. Let us see them saved. Don't look at them merely as threats to your freedom, but as sinners who need the gospel. I recently saw a comment by a Christian speaker who said online, he said, if the airlines ever institute a mask mandate again, I will be withdrawing from every speaking engagement on my calendar that requires air travel. And I looked at that and I thought, okay, regardless of your view on mask mandates and things like that, are you really saying that if you had the opportunity to preach the gospel and the only way to get there was through a plane, Your precious freedoms are so important to you, you would refuse to go because of a cloth on your face? And I understand it's one comment among thousands, but we look at the the thread and the comments, everyone, yeah, stand up for your rights, yeah. Someone even said, yeah, I have a short-term mission trip scheduled soon, but I will do the same if that happens again. I refuse to suffer these indignities again. I hope you understand that my desire is not to wade into a debate about the efficacy of mask wearing. I'm only using that as an example of how we've prioritized our freedoms over preaching the gospel. And I believe the word of God is clear that it's the gospel first. And Paul is an amazing example of this. And so brothers and sisters, see yourself as Paul wherever you are. Deliver the king's message, but trust the king with their results. In verse 23, I pointed out that when Agrippa and Bernice entered in, there was much pomp. The word for pomp is a word where we get fantastic or fantasia. And what that means is that their pomp was fleeting. One commentator says this, Rome is just a memory. How do any of us know about Rome today? Because we learned about it in history class if we were awake. We learned about it, right? Where is it now? Where is Nero? Where is Caesar? Where is Agrippa? doesn't matter how much pomp, how many followers, how many fans, how many applauds people get as leaders. Their time is limited. But there is one king 
whose kingdom shall never end. And He's the King that we serve, King Jesus. Don't allow authority figures to influence you in such a way that you cower to obey the King of Kings message. Because really, when you think about this scene in Acts 26, who's on trial? Is Paul on trial? Or is Agrippa on trial? Paul is presenting the king to the king. Every knee shall bow, all creatures great and small around the throne. The king is risen, and we are his people. And so, our disposition toward authorities, whether good or bad, should be guided by a desire to see them come to faith in Christ. Yes, there's a time to vote. Yes, there's a time to resist. Yes, there's a time to protest. Yes, there's a time to boycott. But at the end of the day, the first things Christians ought to do is preach the gospel to our leaders and pray for our leaders that those in authority would bow their knee to the King of Kings before it's too late. Let's pray. Father.